Hi, everybody. It's Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development. We're with our Educators Podcast with Professor John Boyer from Virginia Tech. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you so much, sir. What I thought was really interesting, uh, the recommendations on your LinkedIn profile saying they enjoyed your wine class. Uh, it's hard not to enjoy my wine class. It's hard not to enjoy all of my classes, but maybe I'm partial <laughs> to the way that I teach only because we've received so much positive commentary and feedback over the course of two decades. So yeah, the wine class has gotten more and more and more popular over the years as America uh, has drank more and more wine over the years. I would like to say that's because of my class, but the reality is that lots more people have been drinking wine in America. We've undergone this great kind of cultural dietary shift in the last 20 years where uh, more attention to food and more attention to uh, uh, more complex beverages like wine has really gone through the roof. Like I said, which is one of the re reasons I started a wine bar here in our small college town as well. Wine is just a fascinating topic that more and more Americans, millions and tens of millions of Americans have really gotten into in the last decade or two. I think that's fascinating that you're an entrepreneur and you're an educator and you're able to combine business and passion and academics and the taste of wine and everything together. I think that's really quite unique. And you run the World Regions course as well for Virginia Tech with three to 4,000 students every single year going through your, your class. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us about the, the motivations behind you doing that and the challenges and, and things you've gone through and experiences with that? Uh, sure. Well, uh, the motivations are interesting because I wasn't motivated to teach this class. I think like many college professors, um, teaching isn't something you set out to do. I don't know if a lot of folks who go to college or university anywhere in the world understand this, but most college professors get hired to do research and write books and get grants. Oh, and then you do this thing called teaching on the side as well. Uh, I was never burdened with all those other higher end things. I was a master's student doing some research in wine in Virginia actually and got invited to teach just because we were in a small department that happened to have a couple of people on sabbatical and somebody was retiring and they just said, hey kid, you want to teach a class? I had no training, no experience, no desire, honestly. Uh, so I had no motivation from the start. I just said, oh, well, sure, I'll pick up, pick up a few quid um, teaching a, a, a world regions course. Of course, I had taken previously, you know, three years earlier, and that's how I got started in teaching. But then the motivation grew when it was uh, quickly discovered that I was quite good at teaching. I was quite good at public speaking. And when I had taken the very same course years earlier, I hated it. It was boring as hell. It was yeah, kind of the typical uh, rote memory intro courses where you pull out a boring old textbook that some old white guy wrote a 50 years earlier and memorized facts and figures and I just said man why are we still doing it this way if, if all college or, or, and education is about is memorizing facts and you don't need to go to university you don't even need to go to a classroom just go memorize stuff so I wanted to have a different take from the get-go and I got passionate very quickly about getting people engaged, not just in the topic, but in the wider world. That's why I've stayed so motivated about teaching the class because uh, we as a species 
have gotten more and more globalized in the last 20 to 30 to 50 years, uh, more so than ever before in human history. Uh, but our general knowledge about the rest of the world hasn't kept up with our interconnectivity with the rest of the world. I mean, it's no wonder we have so many problems and issues because we're all together now, but still nobody knows what the hell's going on in different parts of the planet. So I got very passionate about like, hey, how do we, how do I get people interested in not just learning some stuff that I want to teach you right now, but I want you to be engaged enough that you want to keep learning about it the rest of your life and that you want to go travel and see the world and see other cultures and interact with people. And so that, that has been my primary motivation. And I don't say this, this is going to sound egotistical, but it's not, but it's, it's kind of my calling and I feel compelled to try to educate more and more people throughout the years as the world seemingly gets more frustrated and complex and full of angst. I feel like it's my mission now. I'm like, oh no, I got to keep going. It's almost like being called to the priesthood. I'm like, no, this is what I do. And I'm passionate about trying to do more, which is why we went online and why we keep trying to reinvent ourselves and do new things every year. John, it's not often that we hear someone saying that they feel called and they have this passion of calling and they know that this is their thing and they're passionate about it and they're, and they're going to dig into it and stay with it and grow it. I, th I would imagine that's why your numbers have grown so large. I would be really interested to hear um, why you made the move to online. Sure. Uh, that's actually uh, a reality uh, in practice. I mean, it was not anything I intended to do, much like starting to teach itself but when our classes got really really big or really really popular I should say and so there was an increased demand for the class and you know I've been doing this like I said quarter of a century to almost 25 years so I started like everybody else uh, in a classroom full of, I think 25 people then we moved to a class of 50 people and then we moved because the demand kept increasing we moved to the biggest kind of standard classroom at our university which held about 575 people and I taught there for a decade and had a great time. And, you know, our reputation grew because we did a lot of in-class antics and did fun stuff and, and got people really engaged. And so it's a double-edged sword. When you do things really well, more people want them. But when you start to move up in scale, there's all sorts of logistical problems that you didn't account for. So, and entrepreneurs and people that produce products find this out all the time. They're like, oh, I'm going to make this watch. Or I'm going to do this thing. Or I'm going to make this program. And it's going to be really great. And it gets popular. Or it really applies to wine. You make a, you, you really do a really great wine and it gets popular. And everybody wants it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, this is great. I now need to make a hundred times more wine. Well, any chef will tell you when you take a recipe and then try to multiply it by a hundred, it's not the same recipe anymore. It doesn't work the same. And the classroom is the same circumstance. So what worked for me in a classroom of 25, we, we altered, I would say radically, but altered to make it better and cooler for a class of 575. But then we got to a point where we needed to scale up again. And because the demand at one point was that we had two to 3,000 people on a waiting list to take this course. <laughs> and it actually, again, it's very good for your ego, but at the same time, you're like, well, I want to teach 3,000 people, but how the heck are we going to pull that off? There's not a classroom of 3,000 people. Well, 
at our university, there happened to be one. It was because uh, Virginia Tech is a fairly big uh, state school. Uh, we've got about thirty to uh, thirty thousand undergrad, another ten thousand uh, grads. So it's a big university, and we did have one big hall, uh, an auditorium that usually was for graduation ceremonies and big speakers, uh, special speakers, and uh, rock concerts. And so, as a gag, uh, back in about 2010, we said, "I said, hey, let's just let's just wipe out all the demand at one time. Let's teach in Burris Auditorium. It's the name of the auditorium. Burris Auditorium seats 3,000. Let's just do it. It will never work." Uh, it'll kill two birds with one stone. Uh, everybody will get to wipe out all the demand and the class will suck so bad that there won't be <laughs> as much future demand. <laughs> so, sorry, this is a long answer for your short question, but that was the background. And so this is when the reality in motion starts to happen. So we actually did pull that off. I would teach it only in the fall semester to 3000 people and we fill it and it was tough. I mean, it was a whole different ball game. I mean, I was trying to use the same lecture material, but it's, it's a lot different beast when you're in a class of 20 people and you can physically look at people's eyes. And even in a classroom of 500 people, I can still see the people in the front row. But you start to get up to 3,000 people and it's, it's like what you see in concert videos. It's like you can't see humans. You're basically just performing. And we did a lot of crazy, fun, interactive stuff there too, but it was a, it was, the logistical challenge was immense. And so, um, and it worked by the way, so we did it for several years. Lo and behold, I thought for sure it would fail, but people thought it was hilarious. So at one point though, it was right, and again, now we're getting into 2010, 2012, 2013, and technology, has always been around obviously, but the, the stuff that we now take for granted like this interview, that was really just starting to get good about 10 years ago. I mean, it, it, Skype's been around for a long time. Everything started to get really good. And about 10 years ago is when Twitter came out and all, and all these other social media platforms came out. And we always try to figure out what's the newest cool thing? How can we use that new cool thing to educate people? Uh, and so we were pulling in Twitter and pulling in these things and uh, and the technology had gotten good enough. They're like, well, you know what? We could live stream this. We couldn't have done that in the year 2000, but you can do it in the year 2012. And so I, re I actually distinctly remember at one point in say 2013, 2014, uh, me asking the class, hey, um, how many of you uh, on day one of the course, I said, how many of you all would like me just to live stream this? And you could just watch it in your dorm room. And everybody said, no, no, that would be terrible. Live is awesome. You're hilarious. We want to watch you. And, and but, but some people said, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. I'd try that. And I said, okay, well, just as an experiment, we're going to teach the class live this semester. And we're going to live stream it simultaneously. And of course, you usually record those things when you uh, are going to live stream something. So on, let's say day one of the class, 100% of the people were in the classroom. Second week of class, 95% of people were in the classroom. Third week of class, 85% of people were in the classroom. You, start, you can start to see where this is going. So by the end of the semester, although everyone said they wanted to see it live because live education is the best thing ever, by the last week of class, maybe there was two or 300 people in a room that seats 3,000. And that's when the light bulbs went off for me and Katie. We said, well, what people say they want and what, and what they'll actually do are two different things. So we did it one more time where we taught 
it very big and we said we're going to do the same experiment and <laughs> that semester was hilarious because almost everybody was watching it online by week four so it became a waste of time to kind of even do it live so that was the year we said let's go ahead and bump it over we also happen to be doing this thing called semester at sea i don't know if you've ever heard of this before it's a, a traveling classroom it's a boat a uh, ship that's a refitted uh, tourist ship basically but that it has a classroom on it with college professors usually there's anywhere from 10 to 20 or 30 college professors and five to six or seven hundred students SAS, Semester at Sea, it's a great program. We got invited to teach on that. And so you're actually on a ship like you're on a mini college going around the world. And we went all around the Atlantic and Europe and Africa and South America. And that, that was actually the impetus. We said, oh, we already knew the world was moving to this online for us. And then we got invited to do this thing on a boat for a semester. We physically weren't going to be in the country. And I said, well, let's just put two and two together. And so that was the first time we went fully live. And I want to say that was 2015. And we actually started doing live podcasts from different parts of the planet. And people thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So the long answer, I'm nearing the end of the long answer for your short question. That's, that was the motivations for us to uh, start hybridizing online, then to go fully online because of circumstances. But even without doing that, global tour on a ship, we would have had much success just going in, swapping into full-on integrated online at that point anyway. Mostly recorded lectures, but once or twice a week, I would get online and do Q&A, like an office hour, or pick a topic of whatever is the hottest news story of the week, and I would do a little live lecture about that and have a little quiz afterwards. So, we when we got to the year 2020 and the pandemic set in and everybody was scrambling to move their courses online, we were just like, just another semester for us. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'd love to talk a little bit deeper about the nuts and bolts of that because I would imagine that mm -hmm. you had to think about things you'd normally do in person like marking an exam or doing formative assessment and like you said, a quiz. So how did you manage that? Did you automate everything? Tell us about all of that. Sure, uh, most of it is automated because when you start getting numbers like that, there's really no options. But speaking of options, I use this um, evolution to radically change the entire format of the course to give students more options of what and how they wanted to learn. And this is what I get asked a lot of questions about from other teachers is like, what's this system? And it, it's not revolutionary. It's nothing new. Uh, it's a point accumulation system. So instead of saying, Oh, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to teach this class and I'm going to have a midterm exam and a final exam and a paper, and I'm going to grade those three things. And that's your, that's your going to be your grade. Uh, so that's a set amount of points, right? And you're going to score certain ways and that's going to translate to A through F. I uh, do it the opposite where I say, I'm going to give you a bunch of opportunities to do a bunch of different assignments. Do whatever you want. 
Uh, do as much as you want, do as little as you want, but at the end of the day, you're going to get points for everything you do and you keep working and keep learning, hopefully, uh, until you get to the point level that you want. And the point level is set from the start. So it's like, okay, you need uh, uh, 800 points to get a C and you need 1,000 points to get a B and you need 1,300 points to get an A. And I'm going to give you opportunities for up to 2,000 points. So what that does very quickly, it's a positive motivation. It's a positive reinforcement uh, uh, cycle. So if you think about how we traditionally do classes, we say, again, I'm going to give you a midterm and a final. Uh, and I always ask people this when I do talks, and no one ever gets the answer. But in traditional classrooms, at what point in the semester do you have the best grade? At what point in the, in the semester, from day one to the last day of class, when does the student have the best grade? And I'll cut to the chase. It's on day one. Because traditional grading, all it does is present opportunities for you to lose points. So on day one, you've done nothing and you have a perfect A. And everything else your professor does for the rest of the semester is a challenge that they will mark a little bit down on something you've done. Or I'm going to give you this test. Oh, I missed these points, so I got a little less. Does that make sense? So it's no wonder that people get so you know, stressed out about exams. It's one of the reasons why people cheat because it, it, at some point it's kind of an all or nothing system and you're like, I have to, I have to win. I have to get all this. I have to get as much as I can. And I didn't, I never liked that that much. And so my system is, nope. My system is basically work-based and I want you to learn and I want you to be engaged. And I want you to be excited. So don't worry so much about the A through F. If you work really hard and do a lot of stuff, you'll get the grades you want. And if you're too busy in life and you have other classes that are bogging you down, well, decide what you want to do in my class and when you want to do it and get to the grade you want and then you're good. You can tap out and then it allows flexibility in people's individual schedules. It also allows flexibility for what it is they want to learn because I give you lots of different opportunities. So I can say, hey, here's a whole lecture on Australia. You can do that. Here's a whole lecture on South America. Here's a whole lecture series on international organizations. You do the parts that you want because I'm going to offer you more than you need. Does that make sense? What we found is that, of course, most people end up getting a really good grade, but they're also doing way more work than they need to to even get that good grade. So I love it because it allowed me to expand the content of the course. In a, in a standard three and a half month course, man, I, I couldn't hardly lecture on even half the topics I wanted to. Uh, most of us who are passionate about our subject always want to tell students more and have more stuff, but you only have limited time. This, uh, this took the cap off my time. So I'm like, I can talk about anything I want all the time and I'll just add it to something else you can do. And you, the student, can go choose this, that, and the other. Uh, and if you don't like that or you're not that interested in this particular subject, that's fine. You can go pick something else to do. It also allows for great flexibility for different types of learning. So some students, and I'm sure you know these students, and maybe some of these type of students are going to listen to this podcast. Some students are just really bad at taking tests. And some really super smart people 
just are not good at regurgitating information in a pressurized situation called a test. Does that mean they're not that smart? No, that just means they're not good at this particular way of demonstrating that knowledge. And so I have lots of quizzes on, you watch a video, take a quiz, you read this book chapter, you take a quiz. But I also built in other assignments. So for people that uh, like to write, which is not that many people anymore, but some people are still out there. So I'm like, no, oh, no, here's a couple different writing assignments you can do on an international topic to earn points that way. We incorporated Twitter. We said, oh no, you can tweet as a world leader. You can tweet, you can, uh, we, uh, this was back when Twitter was brand new. Uh, we were kind of first to the game. And so we made up a whole bunch of fake accounts for all the world leaders. And then we allowed students to, as an assignment for the semester, tweet <laughs> as that world leader for the whole semester. And again, a lot of folks, a lot of folks uh, in the educational uh, environment would say, what do you mean? You can't give students points for tweeting. That's ridiculous. That's, I mean, that's not <laughs> displaying any knowledge. It's nothing. It's a joke. And I, and I say, well, that's because you don't know about how this works. If you, we would make people tweet every day. So if you were uh, the fake Angela Merkel, you had to tweet every day. You had to say what you were up to, where you were at. If you were visiting another world leader, policy issues, you had to tweet every day. And at the end of a three month semester, we can go into Twitter and look at everything you've tweeted. And it's basically a 25 page paper. So uh, to me, it's six to one and a half dozen other. Do you want people to do a 20 page paper and that makes them smarter on a single topic? Well, I had somebody do a 25 page paper on Angela Merkel pretending to be her for three months. Who do you think smarter at the end of the day on those particular topics? So uh, there's flexibility and when you can take all these quizzes and, and tests, there's flexibility in the types of assignments you can do and there's flexibility on the topics that you can pick to do. So that allows, that affords the maximum flexibility in a very busy world. So that's one of the reasons I was excited to go to this format is this allows for the students to do everything they wanna do and it allows for me to do everything I wanna do. So with the quantity of um, evidence of their learning, how do you manage the, the actual physical marking of that, assessing the quality? Do you have 150 teaching assistants that you have to manage <laughs> and look after to make all of this work? Yeah, I was, I was going to add on to that, but I wanted to give myself a break in, in case you wanted to interject with another question. Your original question was, how do I grade all this stuff? So I can send you a syllabus, by the way. Send you a current syllabus. Hell, I'll send you a syllabus from 10 years ago. Compare. Uh, but again, with the diversity of assignments, the bulk of it, the bulk of the points that are provided uh, and the bulk of the points that most students earn are straight up quizzing. And so right. okay. we, have, uh, we have a textbook and uh, or sometimes two and there are readings and then you go take a quiz on that reading. They're paced out through the semester. Then there's a bunch of recorded material of myself. I attempted, uh, I recorded a lot of the stuff five years ago when we made the switch, uh, but I attempted to make the, the, the pieces of video somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes, but I'm long-winded, so sometimes they go over. So it, there is a logic, logical progression to the lecture series. So there's like a lecture series on Japan. And it's about a two to two and a half hour lecture altogether, 
but it's in pieces. So you can go in and watch a piece uh, and take a break or watch it 10 times if you like. Students really love that. The idea of being able to watch your professor over and over again instead of having it be all or nothing in a live lecture, I mean, that, that's, a few, that's already the present and it's the future and it's the way it should be. I mean, students who watch me lecture on Japan 20 times and if I did it live, they get it once and hopefully you took good notes and it's like, wow, why did we start doing this a long time ago? This makes way more sense from a student perspective if you really want them to learn. So anyway, uh, book reading quizzes, uh, video lecture quizzes. There's something I also do called pop quizzes where I'll just, again, there's something interesting in the news. I don't know, some, something like a pandemic and I'll do a a podcast just on that and then I'll send it out to the class and say, oh, by the way, I just recorded this and you have 48 hours to watch the video and take the quiz that's attached to it. Uh, and then there are the other, so that's the majority I'd say that's, I don't know, 80% of the points that are offered are through kind of conventional watch this, take a quiz, read this, take a quiz, and that stuff's all automated. There are tricks to doing it properly, by the way, and I can get into that too, to prevent cheating and prevent people just faking it. Uh, but the other, say, 15, 20% are these alternative assignments that we always try to challenge ourselves with building, uh, but also challenge the students with doing something new and cool. So that's the stuff that has to get graded. And yes, I do have, um, Katie uh, is my technical assistant who's been helping me put all this stuff together since we were teaching those 3,000 person classes. She's the one that pushed me a lot because she's younger. She's a hip, was a student, was a hip student in technology. So she'd say, hey, Boyer, you should try this. Hey, you should pull this in. Oh, we should try to do this. I'm like, okay, sure. Uh, and so that's how all of that kind of evolved. But we also get, as most universities have, you have graduate students who end up being your teaching assistants and they get a small stipend to help out professors. So we have anywhere from two to four of those folks every semester, depending on how many different classes I'm teaching and, and the needs. And those folks are assigned for 20 hours each, I think. So you have, we'd say if you say 40 hours is a full-time work week, we probably have two full-time TAs uh, assigned to us to help with the other grading. And we have to teach them how to do that every semester. And, and it's great because we want people to get experience, but it sucks because you, the graduate students rotate. So you're always having to reteach people the system again. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much how it works and it flows. And the last thing I'll say about how this works is when people hear me do this talk or a talk like this, which I haven't done for a while. So thanks for this invite. Um, a lot of professors or teachers or whatever uh, uh, bureaucrats are like, ah, this doesn't make any sense. Students can just do anything they want. Uh, and they all are just going to get an A because you said they can, you're going to give them tw twice as many points as they need and they can do anything they want all the time. So what's the point of even doing this? And I'm like, no, no, no. You do have to provide structure. And so all the assignments that I just mentioned, everything is paced. You can work ahead as much as you want and it's encouraged. Again, that adds flexibility to a student's schedule. So on day one of my class, if you wanna cram in advance, 
I mean, usually cramming is the thing you do at the last minute, but if you want to cram at the first minute, go for it. We have people that are halfway to an A by week two. Uh, but a lot of stuff is available on day one, but it disappears as every week progresses. So let's say there's uh, uh, 15 book reading quizzes. Well, there's one a week. You can take them all in week one if you want, but the first one disappears in, after week two, and then and the next one disappears after week three, and the next one disappears after week four. Students, I shouldn't say students, humans need that kind of structure. So there's flexibility, but still with a, a structure that keeps you, you know, on the highway, heading in the right direction and not going off a cliff. If you allow people to do anything they want and you say, well, just do all of this before the end of the semester, 90% of them will start working on the last two days of class. And that's not, it's not great for the student. It's not good for learning and it's not good for engagement. So that's why we structure things as we do. It's at great flexibility, but things are paced. You can't, you have to have your head in the game from day one, you can't wait till the end. You can't keep putting it off. That's the only people that fail my class are people that keep putting it off with this delusion. Well, I'll make up more points next week. I'll work harder in week five. Oh no, no, I'll, I'll get, I'll work 10 times harder in week 10. It's like, no, those point opportunities have already passed. So you got to stay in it to win it. Love that. In the last couple of minutes that we have left, John, and I've, I must say this has been a lot of fun. Um, could you just share with us what has been the impact on other teachers, other faculty members, the rest of the university that you've seen from what you've been doing over this period of time? You mean the, the impact that, that I personally have made on others in the university? Yes, yeah, so is everyone else going online with 3,000 students and doing disappearing assignments? And, you know, what sort of impact has it been? <laughs> um, well, again, this might be a great shock to your students, but probably something you'll agree with personally. Academia is a very bizarre animal. So there's a lot of petty jealousies. Uh, there's a, a lot of, um, I say islands. I think most universities are like archipelagos. They're islands of people doing work who don't interact with each other very much. So... I think by and large, not that I've not had that big of an impact at my own university because a lot of, I won't say a lot of folks, a lot of folks love me, but there are those academics and I'm sure you know some Craig that are like, oh, that guy's stupid. His classes are a joke. It's easy A. He's too popular. I mean, I got, I've gotten attacked by straight up witch hunts of me in the past of saying, this guy's not qualified to teach this many students. They just think he's funny and popular and that's not right. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm just trying to get people engaged in the content, but that's academia. So, and I don't mean to berate uh, fellow professors at my university or anywhere else. It's the same everywhere. 90%, 80 or 90% of us are really passionate about our work, doing our research, teaching our classes, loving life. But that other 10 or 20% are people that have ulterior goals and there's power plays and all this, all those dynamics that most of people like us are totally disinterested in. So sorry again for the long answer, but I would say I've had some impact at our university 
for those that uh, like the model, I, me and Katie have always welcomed helping other professors. And there are some people that have gone that route. Uh, however, our impact is probably greater out in the rest of the globe. When we started doing this, again, five, six years ago, when we started getting really uh, popular slash notorious about a decade ago, when we started teaching that really super huge class, uh, you know, you get attention from the academic world. So we got invited to go to all sorts of academic educational conferences. Like I said, I haven't done a talk like this for a long time, actually. Uh, got too busy doing a wine bar and doing other stuff in life. But we went for a stint where we were flown all over the world to do talks about this structure and how we do this class in technology. In fact, we got flown to Perth, Australia. We got flown to Singapore, Europe a few times, South America. It, it's been a really fun ride where you get into a zone, again, when you get popular for something in academics, whether it's a certain research paper, or it's cancer research, or it's a tropical fish disease, or, you know, some sort of uh, socioeconomic model, whoever the hot topic is, gets a lot of attention, and you can basically go on tour like a rock star doing conferences. So we did that for a while, and I would say that's where we had the most impact. And this is the summary of all that. Uh, I have been invited to speak about how I do my classes to dozens, if not now hundreds of other universities I don't really get invited to speak at my own university. <laughs> and, I, and I talk to other academics and they're like, yeah, that's, that's how it works. <laughs> I guess that old proverb about a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. It's a similar thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. Uh, again, I can take a hit on my own ego because if there was some new kid in town who was teaching 10,000 students and adored and everybody loved him and everybody was trying to take his class, I'd hate that guy too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, look, uh, Professor John, this has been fun. It's been enlightening. And I mean, I've got a page of notes here as well, which I'm going to include in my uh, description when we post the video. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you doing this. And I sure. hope that we can keep connect together again, catch up with you maybe in a year's time and see what's changed. Heck yeah. Let's get, let's meet up in Indonesia or New Zealand. I need to get back out again. I need to get out of this country. That's for sure. 